Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask that you turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, we have one right in front of the pew rack. On page 874, you'll turn there. Page 874. Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And before we start, I'd be a fool if we didn't go to our great God again in prayer and ask him to intervene on our time together. So will you bow with me in prayer to our sovereign? Father, we are more sinful than we can ever know, but in Christ we are more forgiven than we could ever imagine. And Father, I ask your spirit right now, Lord, to remove the stumbling block of man-centered sin that resides within our flesh, to cause our ears to hear and to enable our hearts to see that Jesus Christ is exceedingly worthy of our entire lives. Father, I ask that you would take this time of your word being proclaimed to stir within our souls a fervent desire to take part in the unparalleled privilege of advancing your gospel to all peoples for the exaltation of the matchless name of Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. If every Christian in the world were to share the gospel with every non-believing person that they knew, and every non-believing person that those Christians shared the gospel with everyone in the world, and all of them came to faith in Jesus Christ, there would still be approximately 3 billion people who would still be lost and in their sins because they don't know a single Christian to tell them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that is a daunting reality. And it makes the task seem insurmountable. But is anything too hard for the Lord? No. And Jesus Christ himself proclaimed this truth in Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the glorious end will come. But the reality is that Jesus Christ will not come again in triumphant return until all the people groups, every nation, language, tribe, and tongue has people in them that are reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now there's three people, three types, categories of people that are responding to this. First we have those who go. Those who feel the overwhelming burden like Paul did in Romans 15 verses 20 through 21 to preach Christ where he has not been named, where the gospel has absolutely no access. And there are those of us in the body of Christ that feel this overwhelming burden to go and to give the gospel to those who have never even heard of Christ. Just as equally important, secondly, there's those who send. There's those who feel called to proclaim Jesus Christ in their Jerusalem. For us, the Lehigh Valley, in our jobs, in our families, in our schools, in our every sphere of life to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And these senders who are proclaiming Christ in their Jerusalem are also bearing arms of those of us who feel called to go to proclaim Christ where he's not been named through financial support, through fervent prayer, and through love and encouragement. And then thirdly, there are those who are disobedient. 
There are those who don't see the summons that Jesus gives and the desire of himself to have him worship and reverence them on all peoples as worthy of their pursuit in life. As we'll see in this text today, those who claim to love and follow Jesus will love what he loves and have a desire to be involved in his mission. And if we're being honest, all of us, in some capacity, have been disobedient to our king, but thank God for his grace in Jesus. Amen? So that's the what, but why? What makes this a worthy pursuit to stake our entire lives on? Go back in time with me to when you were about five, six years old. All of us were in these shoes, and you're trying to make sense and make meaning of life, even simple daily tasks. And your parents are a big part in helping you to do that. For example, let's say you're at the dinner table, and your mom and dad make you your favorite dish, chicken nuggets, mac and cheese, and you scarf that down like a vacuum. But then there's a third thing on the plate, a treacherous, deceitful, and terrible thing called vegetables. And you want nothing to do with those vegetables. But you know that once you scarf down the mac and cheese and the chicken nuggets, that naturally your parents are going to annoyingly, like usual, say, Billy, we're all Billy's, Billy, you have to eat your vegetables before you leave the dinner table. And we all know, as children first time, and if you're parents in the room for a second time, from both perspectives, that the resounding heart cry inquiry in your children's heart is one word. Why? Why must I eat my vegetables? And we might laugh at this, but I think there's something beautiful about that. I think there's something that continues on throughout the lifespan of a human being, and that is the fact that we are all wired with a sense of wanting to make sense of this world and discover meaning and purpose. Why am I to stake my life on this? Why should I do this thing that someone's telling me? Is it really worth it? The theme of this Go conference, there it is, is here I am, send me. After the Lord had asked, who shall go for us and whom shall we send? And Isaiah takes up the call and is saying, here I am, Lord, send me. But why should we be willing to say to Jesus and for this mission that he has to rescue people from every tribe, nation, language, and people group, why should we be willing to take up the call and say, Lord, in whatever capacity, here I am. Send me. Well, in our text here in Luke chapter 14, we see in verse 25, if you look down for me, that great crowds are accompanying Jesus. And he's, he turned and said to them, and he's about to give them the what of what it means to be a disciple. You see, many people are following Jesus, or following Jesus, but they're really not following them on Jesus' terms. Think about it. Jesus is performing miracles. Jesus is doing healings. He's giving out free food. I mean, who doesn't want free food? The bread and the fish? I'd follow anyone who can multiply food for me. But they're not really in it because they love and cherish the person of Jesus or what Jesus loves. They're in it for what can be provided for them. But Jesus is about to completely turn the tables upside down and give new perspective on what it means. And he's been saying it all throughout but continue to reemphasize what it means to follow him. And I think he also identifies from what he's calling us to, the why. Why is it worth it? Why should we be willing to say to Jesus, here I am, 
send me. The first reason, as we see, is that Jesus is worthy of supreme love. Look down at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, stop there. You think Jesus at this point is probably going to say something worthy of hatred, evil, sin, the corrupt world influence. But that's not what he says. In fact, it's polar opposite of that. Look down at your text. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, you can insert husband in there, and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is telling us to hate what is most near and dear and intimate to us from the closest relationships we have in this world to even our own life. Now, does he really mean hate? You thought you were coming to Cedar Crest to have a Bible lesson, but you're also going to get an English lesson. The uh, grammatical device that Jesus is using in here is called hyperbole, which is an exaggeration that's not meant to be taken literally, but is used as a point of emphasis. And if we look at similar language, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So what we see here is that Jesus is calling for a supreme and superior love for him above all other things. That if someone were to see how committed, how devoted, how stirred your affections are for Christ, that they'd say, do you even love anything else in life? That's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. But what does it look like tangibly? Many of you know I went to North Africa this summer and I had the awesome opportunity to preach Christ to Muslim peoples who are lost in their sins and who are willing to very much interact and have conversations like that. And there was this one guy, um, I'll call him Muhammad, because that's like 25% of the people there. So if you're there and you forget someone's name and it's a guy, say Muhammad, you might be right. So there's a good tip for you. So Muhammad from North Africa, I grew to really love this guy, and he still is um, uh, in rejection against the gospel, but many conversations that he was willing to have regarding it. And in talking with Muhammad, um, I was talking to our team leader, Bob, uh, who I joined up with there. He's been there for six, seven years. He's like a mentor figure to Muhammad. And he once told me of a conversation that he had with Muhammad where he was explaining what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And Muhammad thought about it. You could tell he was pondering immensely. And he said, Bob, if I were to become a Christian, if I were to follow Jesus Christ, I would have to tell my mom, his father's deceased, I would have to tell my mom, and I have no idea how she would respond. And the reality is that for many Muslims in North Africa and in the Middle East, they are turning from Jesus and facing ostracization from their families and even worse, threatening of their own lives. And many have been killed by those who are most intimate, near, and dear to them because they have turned to faith in Jesus Christ. But yet they count loving Jesus as providing more joy for their lives than any other human relationship could offer. And not only that, but they're willing to love what Jesus loved and follow his mission of proclaiming Christ. They want to tell their families about it, no matter what it would cost, because they desperately want their families to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so Jesus receives the glory and honor and praise that he's due. So we see that it's all these family relationships and yes, even our own lives 
If we love Jesus, we will love what He loves. And what He loves is what He earned at the cross. Reverent worship from people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And loving His mission will provide true fulfillment, meaning, and motivation that no other mission your family members, no other mission your closest friends, no other mission this world or country could offer you than the mission of Jesus Christ. So what does this look like for us? Maybe there are many of you who live in families where your brothers, sisters, your fathers, mothers are very opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And following Jesus means they're not going to like you as much or it might mean that they might kick you out of the home. Let me just encourage you. The family that you have in Jesus is far greater and lasts forever than any other family built here on this earth. And you have brother Jesus and the heavenly father. And that is more than enough. But thinking about this more, maybe some of us don't really have that type of household and everyone loves Jesus in the family. Then I would ask this, and I want to start in thinking about parents, fathers and mothers in the room, whether your child is an infant, whether he or she is 18. What do you desire for your kid's life? What do you desire for your kid's life? Now, it's the Spirit of God that has to change them, but you're called to be faithful in training up your child in the way they should go. So do you desire for your kids to love Jesus so much that their love for you is incomparable and their love for anything else is incomparable than their adoration and affection for Jesus? Let me put it even in a more real way. What if one of your kids, your precious little son or daughter, came up to you one day and you knew that they were wrestling and discerning through what God would have them do with their lives? They came up to you and they said, Mom, Dad, there are billions of people who don't have access to the gospel. Most of those places very dangerous and life-threatening. But I have counted the cost. Jesus Christ is supremely worthy. Mom, Dad, I want to take the gospel to where it's never been named before and spend my life reaching unreached people groups for the glory of Christ. How would you respond as a parent? Sure, mixed emotions. It's okay to be worried. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be fearful for your child. But there's no safer place for them than the will of God. And there is no more joyful realization than to know that your kids love Jesus so much that they realize he is exceedingly worthy of them giving up their lives for the sake of the name. I would hope that you would be so joyful of that. Children, teens, people who are children of parents still living in the household, do you have a life aspiration set up for you that's being set up from your, maybe your parents or maybe following in your brother or sister's footsteps? It's not necessarily a bad thing or maybe even from the way our culture inundates us. The American dream, whatever it might be. Is your life aspiration coming from those things or is it ultimately, of course you want your parents to shepherd you in that process. You want their love and support. But is it ultimately, above all things, what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords wants for your life. To go wherever Jesus would have you go, whether it's being a faithful sender or a faithful goer, for the sake of his name. And for all of us, 
We should be willing to renounce reputation and influence of others, even of those closest to us. Our fathers and mothers, our brothers and sisters, friends that we have, for the sake of following Jesus Christ and his mission to draw all peoples to himself. So if we see Christ and his mission as what is most worthy of our supreme love in this life, it should compel us to undergo the most immense suffering for the sake of his glory and fame. Look with me at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, many times, we, I feel like we can lose a picture of what the cross actually meant in the first century Greco-Roman world. We have it around our necks. We have it on our t-shirts. We put it on our bracelets. It might be wall decor in our living rooms. But do we forget that the cross in the first century was reserved as a humiliating means of dying for murderers, for thieves, and the most scum of criminals in the entire world? And do we realize that the perfect Son of God was given this treatment of death by the hands of wicked men for the sake of his own glory? Why did Jesus take the cross? Hebrews 12.2 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Christ endured the cross. Why in the world would there be joy to experience whipping, beating, flogging, to bear a, I don't know how much it weighed, but a very heavy cross on your shoulders to Golgotha, to undergo humiliating death when you are the king of the universe, the people who are crucifying you are ones whom you've created, the tree that you're nailed on is one that you created, and yet you do it willingly and joyfully. Why was there joy for Jesus to go to the cross? Because of all that would be accomplished for his glory. Because at the cross, Jesus would manifest, reveal himself as the one who was perfectly righteous, who could do everything that we couldn't as sinners, and perfectly follow, love, and obey God, perfectly love neighbor, and be an adequate representative for us and for all peoples of the world. And not only that, but he's showing himself as the infinitely worthy one who himself is God. And because he is God, because he is supremely valuable, exceedingly valuable, limitless in value, he is able to take the infinite punishment for our infinite number of sins one time and make us right with the Father. That is a glorious reality. And it is that that compelled Jesus Christ to go to the cross. So why should we take up the cross? The call of the Moravian Mission Movement, which started with two guys who sold themselves into slavery, because there were these slaves being taken to an island, about 2,000, 3,000, who would have no access to the gospel. They willingly sell themselves into slavery for the glory of Christ. This was their motto. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That is a wonderful quote. The reward of Christ's suffering, as Revelation 5.9 tells us, that by, the, by his blood, he ransomed for himself people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And Jesus Christ is worthy of his reward. And he could easily accomplish that all by himself. But he gives us the joyful privilege to follow him in this path to make disciples of all nations. 
We want to see people who have never heard of the gospel before. We want to see people here in the Lehigh Valley who they've heard of the gospel, but they haven't heard of it and received it in a salvific way. We want to see them love and treasure this Savior who is infinitely deserving of their worship. And secondly, because we can be confident that no matter what it might cost us, no matter the most amount of suffering that it would cause us to go through, He will use that suffering to advance His global purposes. He's honestly in the business of doing so. Primary force of persecution in India is Hindu nationalism, which advocates for the belief that India belongs to Hindus and peoples of other faiths should just go somewhere else to find a place to live, work, and worship. If you're not Hindu, you're not Indian. Don't comply. Your entire gathering gets burnt down. Your families, if it's just one of you and you're a husband or a pastor of a church, I just read recently on an article in Open Doors, your family will get killed and you'll be brutally murdered and tortured. Tortured first, then murdered. There's this uh, man named Mohan who's a 21-year-old farmer. And when his mom and himself turned to Jesus Christ in faith, he lost and was raided of his home and his farm. He lost everything. How did he respond? How would you respond? How would I respond? I would be angry. I would be hurt. I would question God. How does he respond? The people who are against me, I have forgiven them. And in forgiving them, I feel peace in my heart. It's worth it all to walk with Jesus. Is Jesus worth it all to you? And the evangelical growth rate is 3.9% in India. God is using suffering for the glory of his name. Are you willing to take up the cross as well? The symbol of death by utter humiliating means. In whatever capacity God would call you to, are you willing to suffer persecution and humiliation for the glory of Jesus Christ? Do you know that this is actually a gift? You go, what? Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you, believers, that for the sake of Christ, this glorious Christ, you should not only believe in Him, that's a gift, faith, everything of us coming to Jesus was of His initiative, not our sinful fleshes. He opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ. It's been granted for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And First Peter testifies to that too, and all throughout the New Testament. Rejoice in so much as you share in the sufferings of Christ. And praise the Lord, we will never have to suffer the way Christ did because he has taken the wrath of God upon himself. We can suffer immensely because we can look to a faithful Savior who empathizes with our weaknesses, yet without sin, and endured the most immense suffering on our behalf to save us from our sins. Now, You might think in the pews, and believe me, constantly I do too and have to pray this to God. You might think there's no way I could suffer like some of these other, my brothers and sisters around the globe. There's no way I could go what they go through. There's a man you may know of. He was a close follower of Jesus. He was actually in the inner circle. And a day before Jesus was going to be crucified on a Roman cross for the glory of his name, this disciple had said... After, after Jesus had said, where I'm coming, you cannot go. I will go and prepare a place for you. And this disciple says, Lord, will I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. 
The next day, this same disciple who was so bold and adamant about his ability to follow Jesus. Don't you, don't you know that man? That's what he was asked. Don't you, don't you know him? No, 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 I, I, I don't know him. Wait, I think, I could have sworn I saw you with him. Don't, no, 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 I, 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 I'm not, I don't know him. No, 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 I'm pretty sure I saw you with him. I do not know the man. And he remembered that his Savior, after he said that, his bold statement the previous day, so the rooster will crow, and you will deny me three times. And the rooster crowed, and Peter went away sorrowful. He was so bold about his ability to follow Jesus, and he came up and fell very, very hard. He verbally denied his Savior when he said he'd be willing to lay down his life for his Savior. So what does Jesus do? Does he just say, all right, I'm done with Peter. Can't have a disciple like that. No, our God is so, so, so gracious, brothers and sisters. He is so gracious. After his resurrection, he spends 40 days on the earth, and he has a conversation with this disciple. Oh, by the way, his name's Peter, if you didn't catch that by now. And this conversation, Peter, I have to summarize for the sake of time, Peter is very honest with Jesus. In the Greek that we see, you won't see it in your English text if you do go out there out of curiosity, but there's two versions of love that's being mentioned here. Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him with the highest form of love, and Peter responds saying with a lesser form of love. Peter is being honest that he didn't love his Savior as much as he thought he did, but he still loves him. He still wants to follow him. And Jesus, instead of saying, sorry, you haven't measured the bar, recognizes that we are but dust. And Jesus meets Peter where he's at, forgives Peter, restores Peter, and tells him that one day he's going to die a gruesome death for the glory of his name. This disciple, Peter, who once verbally denied him three times, would be empowered and enabled by grace to suffer for the sake of Christ's glory. Brothers and sisters, if a fisherman who denied Jesus verbally three times can be enabled by grace to suffer in whatever capacity, to suffer what he suffered, and tradition holds it that he was hung on a Roman cross upside down because he didn't want to suffer in the same way his Savior did. He didn't consider himself worthy. If he is able, aren't all of us, by the power of the Spirit of God, to go through whatever he would call us to, whether as a faithful goer or sender for the sake of his name? Abide in Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Be in his word. Be in fervent prayer. Gather with the saints and pray for enabling grace for whatever he would call you. Why say here I am, send me? First, because of supreme love. Second, because of immense suffering. And thirdly, Jesus is worthy of holistic surrender. Go through this a little faster. Look at verse 28. He'll give an illustration. For which of you, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Could you imagine that? You have this ambition, you know, some of your friends have this ambition, they're bragging about it, they're boasting about it, to build uh, some tower, uh, bigger than Trump Towers, it'll trump it, and um, they don't count any of the resources or the money. They don't really plan at all. They laid a foundation and they're out of everything. And then you're like, what happens? Yeah, we really weren't wise about what we did. Jesus uses this to illustrate that there's a cost also to be counted to follow him. 
We'll use another illustration in verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him of 20,000? So that's, that's, you know, for you math, non-mathematics, that's twice the amount. 32, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He throws up the white flag. He never thought about whether his men were trained enough, whether he had enough men, how much the other side had. He just went in for it. He never counted the cost. What's the cost of following Jesus? If it hasn't been obviously stated already, Jesus states again, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It costs everything. I love what one commentator says about this. He says, The disciple of Jesus may be given the use of things in trust. Money, financial resources, earthly possessions, a house, a car. The disciple of Jesus may be given the use of things in trust as a stewardship, but they are no longer his own. First of all, they're already gods in the first place, but when we come to Jesus, we have this illuminating recognition that everything that really we think belongs to us is all King Jesus is. So we should think of this renouncing as a yielding or a surrendering of rights and ownership of all that is really the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why is it worthy to be giving up everything to follow Jesus and his mission? Oh, I love the response of the disciples, the Jews in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says that you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Everything for the sake of following Jesus was taken from them. Why did they joyfully accept it? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The eternal inheritance we have and the mission that we have to follow Jesus is better and it lasts forever. Do you think those Jews, 2,000 years ago they lived and died, do you think they're sitting in heaven right now saying, man, I really wish we didn't lose our property? No. They have the eternal presence of Christ's glory that they are dwelling in and seeing people probably from the ministry that they have done that have been saved and rescued from their sins. Of course not. They have a much better, and we do, an abiding possession in Jesus. And I want to bring application to a final closing from this section and from the rest for goers, senders, and the disobedient. So we see Jesus is infinitely worthy of our supreme love. He's infinitely worthy of our immense suffering. And he's infinitely worthy of our holistic surrender. That should lead us with the joyful mindset to say every day, Lord, here I am. Send me. So what does that look like? Well, for those of you that are goers or are feeling this compelling to go, and all of us should really be with open arms, and I'll say that, be with open arms to whatever God would have us do. But if you're feeling the call of a goer, number one, I would say, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in Jesus your labor is never in vain. If indeed he calls you to an unreached people group, it might be frustrating. 
There might be discouragement that people aren't responding to the good news. You will have to explain the good news to a people who have never even heard it. That's very difficult and challenging and requires lots of perseverance. It may be discouraging because you can't figure out the language. Oh, the language. I just went to North Africa and studied Arabic, and I just I remember how to say hi, goodbye, and uh, foods. That's all I remember. It's hard work. And maybe it's even discouraging because there's not a solid group of Christians established there. But we can be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, because in Jesus our labor is never in vain. And be strategic as you're discerning this. Think about the fact that, again, there are three billion, approximately, who have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. Never. Can you imagine that? You go into a village and you proclaim the gospel and you talk about Jesus and they say, who is that? And we have such ready access to it. Be strategic. Think about areas where the gospel has not been proclaimed. Pray over unreached people groups. Use resources like, this is for senders too, Operation World, joshuaproject.org, opendoors.org. You can ask me about that too if you forget them. And research unreached people groups. Pray for the peoples of the world. And if you're discerning through the call of going, I think we have an outreach pastor who has white hair and glasses, and I think he's been around uh, at some point here. Um, and he would love, and he has been played an influential role in my life. It's Pastor LaRusso, if you didn't get that. Talk with him. And I believe, too, Pastor LaRusso, that we have this thing called a missionary development team, and they help missionary, people who are discerning the call think about how they can do that and what steps they can take to go forward. Is that true? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So seriously... Bring the local church into this. We've been called to do this together, so let's do it together. Senders, be willing to go. And I would say that for goers too. Be willing to send if God would have you do that too. This isn't about a first-tier Christian or a second-tier Christian. Let me just make that very clear. It's either faithful or unfaithful. Nothing few and far in between. So senders, if indeed you are Going forward with that, proclaim Christ where you're at here in the Lehigh Valley, in your business, in your workplace, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, in your families. Proclaim Christ and Him crucified as if your life depended on it. Advocate for the cause of mission. Study those people groups. Research them. Get a glimpse of the world Christian movement because Jesus cares about those people coming to Him. So let's not just think inwardly, let's think outwardly. Advocate. Pray. Pray for those whom we've sent out. Pray for the JMBs. Pray for Tony and Joanna Muir. Pray for Shirley Felty. Pray for Haley Ott. Pray for Amanda Brennan. I'm sorry if I forgot any of you. Pray for our missionaries and the people involved in the missions organizations that they would be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Give financially. It's just a reality that Many of us sitting in the pews are among the 1% most rich in the world. What greater way than to use some of that money than to give for the cause of Christ and His global kingdom that will last forever? Give of your resources. Give of your money. Pray over that with your families earnestly and see what God would have you to do. And love. Love your missionaries. Send them letters. 
Encourage them. Ask how you can pray for them in letters. When they come home, invite them over for a meal. Encourage them. Ask about their ministry. That would be monumental for them and would be a great way to keep them spurred on for the glory of Jesus among the nations. And lastly, the disobedient. And all of us have a measure of repentance to do in this and to continue to move forward through the grace of God. So let us not, let's take the log out of our own eye before we judge someone else. But I would say this, if, if you are in unrepentant sin, if you're here, even if you're a guest or you've been here for a long time, you never actually really follow Jesus on his terms as we see in the text. This is what it means to receive Jesus by faith, to even though it'll be hard, you will mess up, but you continue to look to him as your greatest treasure. I urge you, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ this day. Today is the day of salvation. And there will be someone afterwards to pray with you that would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Talk to someone in the pews. Talk to a pastor. Talk to myself. That's what we're here for, for the glory of Jesus and for him to be followed above all else. He is clearly worthy. Now the ball is in our court. Do we believe that he is this worthy? Will we put it into action? And may your heart cry be every day before the Lord. Lord, here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Father, I just want to simply pray that as your church, you would raise up here at Cedar Crest faithful goers and faithful senders that are willing to say, here I am, send me. For the glory of your name and the joy of all peoples, I pray. Amen.